Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .NET. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today is oh nobody, nobody. It's just me. Well, me is your host. So we do have a guest today. Let's welcome back to the show, Cecil Phillip. Welcome, Cecil. You know, I didn't want to leave you by yourself, so I made sure that I came <laughs> and you had company. So it's going to be me and you today, but we're gonna we're gonna make it happen. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv, and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So um, let's start off about uh, reminding our listeners in case they haven't caught the uh, last episode that you were on, who you are and, and what you do. Sure, sure. So like, like Sean said, my name is Cecil Phillip. I'm a developer advocate out of Florida. I've been doing developer advocacy for oof, six, seven years now. It's been a little while. Originally, I was an advocate at Microsoft. And recently, I want to say just about three months ago, I joined uh, the advocacy team at Stripe. So now I'm doing developer advocacy over there too. I think the last time I was on, we were talking about some stuff around like Dapper or microservices and how you can do that with your .NET applications. And that was a really fun discussion. So for folks that haven't heard it, I'm sure we would all appreciate it if you go back and like check out some of the old shows. Yeah. So can you uh, can you work with Stripe with .NET? I'm assuming so since you're advocating for it. Of course. You can work with Stripe with anything. But since this is Adventures in .NET, we're only going to talk about .NET. But Stripe itself, so for folks that don't know what Stripe is, essentially it's a way to enable you to process payments in your application. So you can think about, hey, I have some type of e-commerce business or a mobile application or some type of thing that needs to process payments through software. We offer APIs and services and things of that nature within that space to allow you to make that a little bit of an easier process on you. So you know, if you kind of think about things like, hey, how can I process payments and be in a secure way and still be PCI compliance? And you know, how can I support different currencies and countries and all those types of things? We kind of bundle up for you and make it, again, just a little bit easier so that now your time to productivity could be a little bit faster. Yeah, I remember back in the early days of the internet how much of a pain that was trying to if you find somebody that can do a payment processing for you, you kind of had to go to your bank and then see if they had some way to do it and, and you know, have it settled because yeah. you didn't have the card there. Were they okay with that? That was just a, a real pain in the ass. And then, you know, some of the, the, the companies came out and started making it inter, internet friendly. And Stripe is one of them. I think, you know, you see all these little, you know, Stripe interfaces in boxes all around town, wherever you go. Yeah. But then they also do the internet too. So that's nice to know. Yeah, one of the cool things about that, what you just said was, so yes, it does make it easier for you to, to accept payments and process payments with credit cards. But one thing I didn't realize until I got here was how many other different types of payment options there were. I know there were others, but I didn't know how many there were until I got here. And 
what's crazy about it? And I think for those of us that are in the United States, we kind of take it for granted the how how widespread credit cards are. But like outside of the United States, you know, you think about South America or or you know our friends over in Europe, like there's so many other ways that are not as popular as credit cards are. And so for 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 different folks in different countries and regions and even different currencies, you know, their preferred way of payments, some online payments or mobile payments might be completely different. And so now it's not just about, hey, can I accept the card? But it's like, okay, in this region, like what are the options that they use? And in that region, what are the options that they use? And how can we kind of have like a service or interfaces that can kind of adapt to those situations and make sure that we give folks the right options based on the location? So I'm curious, you know, what are some of those other things that people use? Oh, so there's uh, there's all kinds of different ones, man. Now you gotta you gotta put me in the spot. I gotta go look. <laughs> but there's there's payments where, for instance, like credit cards, for instance, they really they pretty much just allow you to like you swipe the card, you put in the number, right, and then and you process the payment, right? They have some other ones where essentially you you have to get like a ticket, like you put in your your card, you get a ticket. And then you have to go to like your bank or some other place to like verify it, right? And then at that point, then the payment goes through. So instead of like having like an instantaneous payment situation, now you're gonna have like a longer period before you actually get your money processed. I'm actually gonna look it up real quick because I, I I should know this. So give me a break because I just <laughs> well you're you're new. You know, you're only a couple months into it, so I'll, we'll give you a break. So, but uh, are are some places more like person to person type payments, kind of like Venmo? Yeah, some of them are person to person. Again, some of them are some of them are just like deferred payment methods. You know what I mean? If you kind of kind of think about that. Another thing we offer too, you know, if you've ever heard about things like Klarna or Alipay, mm -hmm. places that allow you to, hey, I don't have to pay all at once, but we can very much do like incremental payments over time. You know what I mean? Like we have the ability to plug into some of those systems as well and and do some of those. Oh, okay, cool. great. All right. So I found it. So now I'm, I'm looking at this. So we support Alipay, EPS. Klarna is another one, WeChat Pay, Multibanco. Again, I don't know some of these things because some of these are in different countries. Um, Ideal, I-D-E-A-L is another supported payment method. So again, they're all based on the country and then again, your locale and how your financial system is. You know, you might have a variety of these that you can choose from. Cool. So um, what's it like to uh, hook up to these things uh, using .NET? What's it take? Sure. So you have a couple options. I would say the most popular option for most .NET developers is going to be to head over to NuGet and download Stripe.net, Stripe period NET, and just download the NuGet package, right? The company supplies tons of libraries for obviously .NET, but then also there's Go and Java, JavaScript, Python, you know, tons of other languages. And once you have the SDK, now it's a matter of heading over to the Stripe dashboard creating your application because, you know, just like every other online service, you have to create an app, right? And then for that particular app, you're going to have a set of keys that are available to you, like API keys. So for that, let's say you're, you know, the app that you create is associated to a particular business, or it might be one of many apps for one particular business. You know what I mean? For that particular app, I'm going to grab my secret keys, my, you know, my various API keys. And then now I'll have to like insert that inside of the configuration whenever I'm booting up my application. And then now I could use that with the SDK to start making various types of calls. So for instance, I can make calls to see, well, what's my balance? And like, what are the products that I have? I could create and update product information. I could obviously make charges. I could see like the different types of payments I support. I could do invoicing and billing and subscriptions and all these types of things all through the API. The good thing about it too, though, because you know a lot of folks don't know this, but even though Stripe is very developer first, 
a lot of folks use Stripe without writing any code at all, actually. And, you know, that's that's another great option for tons of folks. You know, I know there's a lot of WordPress plugins and CMS plugins and things of that nature where, again, you could go into Stripe, you can create an account and then t- using those same account keys, you know, you put them into your plugins or your extensions that you're using and things of that nature. And now it just kind of deals with it for you. So for a lot of folks that are using, I think, products like Magento and, and some of these other places that do have that integration built in, if you're not a developer, you still have the ability to use Stripe and plug it in so you can start accepting payments online. Very cool. Very cool. So the API, I mean, is, is the backend.net at Stripe or is it something else and you're just using .NET for, the, for, no, the, for, your, for your apps? Backend is not .NET. Okay. I would love it to be, but it's not, <laughs> it is not based on .NET. But again, just because the API, the front end of it, you know, or the part that we expose to everyone, it's it's really just HTTP methods, right? So if you if you want to use curl, because <laughs> for whatever reason, um, you could use curl and just make simple API requests to the endpoint. You know what I mean? If you're using Python or JavaScript or any of those languages, and you choose not to use the SDKs, that's fine. You can always make calls directly to like those RESTful endpoints. And you know, there's documentation and things of that nature that we can all look at to, to see how those work. But like I'm saying, I think most folks are gonna wanna like either rely on the SDKs we provide, or we even have a program called the Stripe Community Experts, which are a collection of folks that provide um, additional libraries and and um, you know additional extensions on top of the SDKs that we provide to probably make things a little bit easier based on like whatever it is that you're using. So as an example, I know we have extensions for things like Vue.js. Um, I believe there was a person doing some, some extensions for Xamarin at one point, Django, again, tons of these other, other platforms. And one thing that might be interesting for the folks that are listening, Stripe actually, as a part of that community experts program, actually sponsors a lot of these extensions. So you know, if you have an open source extension and it's using Stripe, you could possibly become like one of those sponsored products. When I say sponsored, you know, like there's some monetary amounts that will, you know, you will get paid for maintaining these, you know, for maintaining these open source projects and keeping them alive and running. So it's one of the things that I really loved about the company, right? Not only obviously we we support open source verbally, you know, we use it and you know we promote it, but we also you know support them financially too, and you know trying to encourage folks and maintainers to continuously like keep these different plugins and extensions up to date. A lot of people have been doing uh, Blazor development lately. So, is there a, is there a component that Stripe offers to just drop into your Blazor app? So, we don't offer any UI components today for any framework, right? Like we we mainly use the SDKs. Any of those UI components that you might see, those are probably from third party folks. It's like I mentioned, okay. like there's Vue Stripe and stuff mm-hmm. in Django and Python and things of that nature. If there's anyone that's listening that would definitely love to to collaborate and work on some Blazor ones. I think we, we definitely love that. Like .NET is a huge part of, I think, the future of the audience that we want to focus on. Obviously, I'm here, so I, I definitely want to focus on .NET and make sure that you know .NET developers get some love and some attention. You know, regardless of whether you're using ASP.NET Core in the back end or Blazor in the front end, you know, we want to make it as easy as possible for folks to do that. But the the short answer is no. We don't officially support any. When I say support, we don't produce any front end library for like, I don't know, like Vue or React or Svelte or any of these things, but we do support the community building them. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about the API because I've been doing some, a little bit of light reading about uh, the new minimal APIs that are out there now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know about those? I love minimal APIs. So, funny enough, so I was still at Microsoft at the time when, when those were coming out. And I love the focus that the team had, which was, you know, 
how can we reduce the friction? How can we reduce the time to productivity for people just wanting to build APIs? Because think about it. Like, how many times have you needed to create an endpoint, just one single endpoint that just one little thing, maybe for a webhook or maybe to just respond to something? But I don't need the whole thing, right? Like, I don't want to set up, you know, a controller and action methods. And then I got to do like, you know, there was a startup.cs file. I have to set that up and then configure services and like all of these additional things that you had to do. And I think for a lot of us too, like if you grew up in .NET, for you, that might just be expected. Just, you know, it's just like, oh, this is just the way that we do it. You know what I mean? You don't really think about it. But for other folks that are new that are like, hey, I just want to do something really quickly just to see what it looks like. I want to compare it to like, some of the other frameworks I'm learning and like use my knowledge that I have there and bring it over. Or like I'm saying, maybe I just I just want like a little simple webhook, something I could do really quickly. And that was that was, you know, it took a little bit of effort, right? But now with minimal APIs, it makes it so much easier. I I, I love them. I love them. So when they say minimal, it really is minimal? It is it is very minimal. The the cool thing about it, and one of the things I think folks confuse about with it sometimes is the fact that so the setup is minimal. And then you can create these minimal endpoints, but that does not mean that you still can't use or even evolve into using controllers, right? You can actually use them together. And it's one of the things that I, I like about, if you take a look at the templates for, for ASP.NET in .NET 6, you know, most of the startup uses like that quote unquote minimal startup, right? So you're going to see, you know, there's going to be a program.cs and more than likely there's not going to be a startup.cs, right? Because if, if for folks that are listening, if you're familiar with ASP.NET Core, there was a startup.cs file and it had configure services and a configure method. And then you had to configure your, your DI and then your middleware and your routes was in a different function. And there was a whole thing, right? You don't have to do that today, right? Regardless of whether you're doing minimal APIs or not, you don't, right? Because they've kind of condensed what that setup looks like. But now if you wanted to, hey, I can have like my full-blown API with controllers and different action methods and all the swagger things that you want to put in there. Or, you know, maybe I just want to have a really simple endpoint. I could just write a function and say, hey, I want this to respond whenever get requests are made. And again, you could do that all. It happens in one little tiny file. And if you look at that with like some of the additions they've made to C Sharp, things like, like top-level statements, you think about like file scope usings or even global usings, like your startup file, like your entry point into your application is so much smaller than what it used to be. So is there any disadvantages to using minimal APIs? I mean, when would you want to use minimal API versus, you know, going in and using a full-blown controller now? Yeah, that's a good question. I would tell you from my experience, one of the things that I've always been concerned about is, well, I'll give you a couple, I'll give you a couple things. One, when you're using controllers, you might be used to like, nesting nesting like your routes you know what i mean like you think about your routing system you might have slash api slash products right and then underneath that you might want to say okay well under this you know i'm going to have slash api slash product slash you know whatever happened whatever else happens in your route with minimal, minimal apis that's a little bit verbose today but i think the team is working on making that a little bit better also, too, one of the things that I personally prefer sometimes when you're when you're creating a lot of APIs, you're creating a lot of endpoints. Personally, I find it it gets a little bit cluttered. You know what I mean? Inside of one file or one you know one um one CS file. I said, and now you have to start coming up with like your own conventions about well, how do I how do I group these and how do I split these out, right? And how do I make the code not as messy? For me, I think minimal APIs are great if I want to just have like a few endpoints, four, five, six endpoints. But when you work on larger products and now you have, you know, I've, I've seen products that have had 20, 30, 40 controllers. You know what I mean? 
I, mm -hmm. I definitely wouldn't say that's a use case for minimal APIs, right? Again, I think for, from that perspective now, you really want some better organization and control and, and segmentation of how you do those things. And I think controllers, just by the nature of what they are, make that a little bit better from my perspective. You know what I mean? Yeah. And again, there's some other little things too. I think for me, testing today is a little bit better with regular controllers than it are for minimum APIs. But I'm sure that's something that get better over time. And, and also too, I think one of the things that we often don't think about is, well, if you're a new person, right, and you get started with minimal APIs, with this new structure and this new way of building things, let's say you learn this way first, but then you get a job and you go to a company, what's the likelihood that that company's code base is going to be minimal APIs or going to be regular MVC controllers, right? And so now like you have to kind of learn two ways of doing things because one, more than likely, like, you know, the jobs you're going to get, the companies you're going to go to are going to have legacy code that are going to be based on this other style. So while you might be comfortable doing things this way, you're still going to have to learn the other way. I feel like today, like there's no, hey, I'm only going to learn this way. I'm not going to learn the other stuff. You know, like how today folks can say, I'm not going to learn web forms. <laughs> I'm only going to learn MVC. <laughs> I, it's not one of those things. It's not an either or. I feel like you're going to have to learn both. You know what I mean? Just because of the fact that as you go into GitHub and you read blog posts and you're working with other developers, you know what I mean? I think the mind share is still much more heavier on the other side with controllers. And it's just one of those things that we're going to have to get past over time. Yeah, I wonder if web form developers are going to become like COBOL developers, you know? We're going to be dwindling. I have a theory. Fewer and fewer actually know how to do it. I have a theory. I think you're right. I have a theory in about, not that long, and maybe about like five or six years from now, there's going to be a spike for the amount of folks, or there's going to be a, a spike in the salary for folks that can do web forms, because I know there's a lot of software out there <laughs> for a lot of companies. Yep. I still work on some. Doctors yep. and you know insurance companies and things of that nature that haven't updated their software. And someone's going to be like, oh, we, we have all these web, we have all these web form endpoints. No one does this stuff anymore. Who, what are we going to do? Just like the COBOL developers, right? Mm -hmm. And at some point, someone's going to be like, Okay, whatever they want. Here, blank check. <laughs> Please fix this for me. I, I need to take that. This is, this yep. is urgent. So do you know if there's any performance benefit to using a minimal API versus a controller? I don't know. That's a good question. I try to ask I good think that there too. is. I think that there <laughs> should be. Because I think the pipeline that you go through is a lot smaller. Because I don't think it goes through the regular MVC pipeline where, you know, there's... I mean, there's binding, but like, you know, the binding, the validation, the filters and things of that nature. And, and I mean, and that's another thing, too. Today, there aren't like filters or there's not an easy way to add action filters and stuff like that to your minimal APIs. So that's that's another difference. But it doesn't go through all of that stuff. And so I think because of that, there should be some some small performance benefit. I haven't measured it myself. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to tell people, yes, there is if I haven't measured it. You know what I mean? But I would believe that there should be because just because of the pipeline is, you know, it's a little bit more lightweight. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out. And, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go, 
and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Is a minimal API kind of like maybe like an Azure function type structure? Um, I wouldn't say it's like an Azure function. I would say the programming model could be, I guess I could see how you would, how you would relate the programming model to be somewhat similar. So like within an Azure function, so you could create a class, or you create a static class or a concrete class, and then your actual function, you'd have to annotate it with some type of HTTP attribute or some sort. And then that attribute now would be like dictate your routing. You know what I mean? With minimal APIs, essentially, you could, most of the time, you're going to create some type of Lambda function. And then within your Lambda, you're going to say app builder dot map gets or app map post or map delete or whatever the case is. And instead of it just being a function, you're going to pass in two parameters, right? First parameter being the routes. So slash my endpoint slash API slash webhook or whatever the case is. And then the rest of it is going to be that function you wanted to execute. So I think really just depending on on how you want to do things, one you might prefer one versus the other. Yeah, I was um, just thinking, you know, what what uh, well, what else out there is you know kind of lightweight, kind of like in, in that family of just lightweight endpoints things like that. And the first thing that came to mind was uh, Azure Function. Well, if you if you go even further back than that, right? Like if we if we look go into the history of .NET, you might remember a project called Nancy that came out long ago, and and Nancy also had that very minimal perspective of having like just very lightweight endpoints. And if I'm not mistaken, and if there's any Nancy folks that are listening, I apologize. But if I'm not mistaken, you know, you used to be able to within a Nancy module, because that's what they were called, they're modules and not controllers. In a module, you'd essentially just have a function. And again, the function would be within the function and say gets whatever your route is. And then you just you just you just pass it, you just pass in a handler, right? The thing that's going to respond and receive requests and return responses and stuff like that. That, for me, is the closest .NET thing that reminds me of minimal APIs. Now, if we were supposed to walk out of, step out of the ecosystem a little bit, and we think about other languages, like maybe Ruby or Python, you know, if you look at something like maybe Flask or Fast API, that, for me, looks very, very similar to that programming model that you see with minimal APIs, right? Um, from the perspective of, you know, you create an app, quote-unquote, a Flask app, you know what I mean? Then off of that app, you say, you know, app.routes or, you know, app.gets, you know, I mean? and then again, it's the same as a similar programming model, right? You give it a routes, like slash API slash my, my webhook, and then you just pass it the function that you want it to be able to return, to deal with that response. Cool. So what are the things that you've been working with lately? Have you done anything like .NET Interactive? Oh, I love .NET Interactive. Have you, have you played around with it <laughs> at all? I, I, I haven't played around with it. I have to confess, I haven't played with it. I've I've heard about it. It seems yeah. very very interesting, but I just haven't had a chance to get in there and play around. Dynamic interactive is pretty cool, and so and I'm kind of glad you asked me that question because I find like all these things that we've spoken about, like you think about Stripe and minimal APIs and .NET interactive, like we're trying to figure out a way that we can kind of put them together to tell a story for .NET developers that'll be really interesting from an educational perspective. So, so give us the intro. Give us the intro to what it what is .NET interactive. Sure. So so .NET interactive for me is is very much like, if you're familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, and maybe if you have Python folks that are listening, you might be familiar with that. But .NET Interactive essentially is a way that allows us to, to execute or run snippets of code, like little bits and pieces of .NET, and then have it mixed up with things like Markup and even other languages, so that now we can create like these really interesting experiments and these explorations of code as we're kind of like, again, as we're going through the notebook. So... If, if folks are familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, they might know that when you create a notebook, there's different cells. 
And those cells are essentially like where you write your code. And some of those cells could be, again, C-sharp code, for instance, or some of them might be Markdown. So a lot of the times, particularly for folks in the data science world, you know, as they're going through experiments and they're documenting what's happening, they'll have a mixture of code and Markdown, right? Like, this is what happened. This is what we're going to do now. You know what I mean? Kind of like explaining like their hypothesis or like the path, the path that they're going through to try and like tour around this data or try and explore the problem that's at hand at the moment. So now with that context, that an interactive allows us to do that, but we, we do it with .NET. And Jupyter Notebooks, again, for folks that are familiar, has the concept of kernels. And so kernels are really like the execution engine. Like what's the thing that's actually going to run the code, right? So what the .NET Interactive did was, the, what the team did was they created a kernel for .NET. So there's a .NET kernel for Jupyter Notebooks. So if you're using Jupyter Notebooks, you can install the .NET Interactive kernel in the notebook and now I can write .NET code in my notebook, which I think is really cool. But where .NET Interactive takes it even further is that in the beginning it was .NET, but today the kernel is actually what they like to call a polyglot kernel. So when you think about polyglot kernels, that means that I can write more than one language in the notebook, and the kernel can deal with more than one language. And so I think today they support, obviously, C Sharp, but there's also support for PowerShell. They support JavaScript, SQL. Um, I believe they support Kusto, which is the um, query language they use for application insights and some other features inside of Azure. And I know there, you know, this plans to add additional support for some more languages soon too. But I'm I'm not a data science guy. I'm not gonna lie. I'm not gonna <laughs> pretend that I am or understand how that stuff works. But I am a person that you know creates content for folks learning how to write code and build products and things of that nature. That's kind of what we do as advocates. And so now, as I think about, well, hey, what are some interesting ways that we could introduce .NET developers into the world of Stripe. And so, you know, I've been talking to the team, talking to the .NET Interactive team and my own team as well. And we've been kind of trying to play around with creating some notebooks for .NET developers, you know what I mean? Just to kind of see, well, hey, if you've never used Stripe before, if you've never used our APIs before, you know, can I create a notebook that's going to help you create products and add it to your account, you know, add prices to those products. And then, you know, we can do charges and subscriptions and, be able to show you like how to accept and, and process credit card payments in a in a in a secure and, and compliant way. And, and that's been a lot of fun. And you know, the story for me obviously is Stripe, but I think the bigger story is, hey, now as .NET developers, we have so many more options available to us to explore the language, to learn how it works, and even to create again like these little self-contained experiments. Because before that, if you think about what does it take for you to create like a sample? Like what does a sample mean, right? And for a lot of folks, that means web application 467, web application 468, right? <laughs> like every yep. time you do file new project and it keeps incrementing the number, you know, console application 2087 or whatever your number is. And I've seen this, right? And I'm sure you've seen this as well for folks that they create a new yeah. application yeah. just to test out a very small thing. Yeah. And, you know, you have tons of these and you're like, I, I typically resort to LinkPad. That's my <laughs> tool of choice for this type of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Link, LinkPad is another another great option as well. And I think they're, I think the Telerik team has like a REPL, like a .NET REPL as well that they can run in the browser. So there's a lot of different options for, for doing some of these types of things. But for me now, .NET Interactive, I love the, the polyglot nature of it. So now, not only can I create something that has .NET, but it has Markdown. I can write a little bit of JavaScript. I can write some, some C-sharp and all kinds of things all mixed in together. 
And but I can give like a relatively lightweight experience, a lightweight tour for folks just wanting to be able to one learn how how Stripe works, but two learn how to work or use our APIs for .NET, you know, for our Stripe services. So where where are most people using .NET Interactive? Is it uh, an add-in for VS Code or on a website or? Yeah, it's an add-in for VS Code. And if for folks that may may remember this or not, inside of docs.microsoft.com, you can there's I think either for Blazor or I think maybe the learn.net's getting started tutorial, you actually write .NET in the browser. And so a lot of that is running on try.net. So try.net is powered by .NET Interactive. And so again, you no browser, no in, installation necessary, right? Like all I need is just to be able to go to the website and type in a couple things and it'll run it, run that code inside of, uh, inside of our stuff. But yeah, and I'm sure .NET Interactive is going to pop up in a few other places that the team will <laughs> let you know about in the future. But for me, just being able to, to create these little experiments and share them with other folks for me has, been, uh, has been amazing. Yeah, I could see people using it for things like uh, interviews. You know, God knows that would be a whole much better than a whiteboard. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great option. Interviews are great. You know, because for folks that don't know, PowerShell also too runs on a flavor of .NET. I know a lot of folks that are doing, you know, provisioning of machines and running their PowerShell scripts, and they're creating, I guess you can call them runbooks, where there's essentially scripts and scripts not just in terms of PowerShell scripts, but like you know, actionable scripts where there's some description and there's code for just carrying out different types of IT tasks. Right, whether it's provisioning machines or like spinning up resources in the cloud or whatever the case is. And again, education, again, which is near and dear to me, like that's that's another big use case. Whether we're talking about like students or even just people just wanting to play around and trying to see how can we, you know, how can we have like a better experience when we're trying to learn stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of its yeah. main purpose really is just to make something simple, quick to make a real quick and dirty apps and simple, nothing that really does a whole lot of functionality, but just samples and tutorials and training and things like that? Well, I think that's one. But then also we have to think about like the world of data exploration too. So for for most folks that are writing Python and Jupyter notebooks, you know, they're using things like TensorFlow and you know scikit-learn and things of that nature to explore data. Another good example for us is well, ML.net, right? Like that would be our our you know our comparable you know, framework in that space, you know, and so a lot of folks are using these .NET interactive notebooks with ML.NET to do data exploration. It supports visualization. So if you want to, you know, show charts and graphs and all these types of things, you know, within that UI, like that's also very possible too. I think if today, if you head over to github.com slash .NET slash interactive, and inside of that samples repo, there's an, uh, there's a sample that shows how to use a tool called Plotly. And Plotly, you know, it's a visualization framework, right? So you could use it to, again, plot out the data that you're looking at and show different types of regressions, pie charts, bar graphs, you know, Gantt charts, all these types of things. So now instead of just like console print line some stuff, right, like we're actually visualizing the data in richer ways, which, again, depending on the type of job that you're doing, you know, could be very, you know, very helpful for your productivity. Well, it sounds like some people are actually using it almost like, you know, full-blown application types stuff instead of just sample work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things I, I learned and I realized as you started playing around with notebooks is that when you think about software development, code means different things to different people, right? Like if you think about folks that are writing bash scripts, me writing a bash script and me writing something like a full-blown mobile application, like we're talking about a different type of coding, right? Like, and we talk about a different type of intent. 
And it's still code and it's still important that our code is performance and it's readable and it's maintainable. But like the the target is just different, but it's no less important than the other ones. And I think for a long time, .NET only existed in a space where we were creating applications that were either, you know, based on Windows, a Windows UI type application or, or some type of web application. But then now you're starting to see .NET explore itself into a lot of other places too. Like, you know, there's there's the IoT space, the machine learning space, like we've just been talking about. And then, you know, everything else that folks are trying to trying to do with, you know, with security and performance and containers and all these other types of things, which I think is really great. And I think .NET Interactive is just one of those many new options for us to look at way we can take our .NET skills, right? Like you don't have to just be just be the mobile guy or just be the web guy or just be the WimForms desktop guy. You know, like there's so many more options for us as .NET developers for where we could take our stuff. Yeah, you mentioned performance and that made me really think like, wow, I could use that. I'll make one little snippet of code, check its performance, copy paste it into another snippet, change the way I'm going to do it, and then compare the two or three or four different ways of of doing something to see which one is the most performant. Yeah, that's true too. And actually gives me an idea. I should, I'm going to try this out today. I want to see, I want to see what it feels like to run benchmark.net in a notebook because I've never tried that before. But that could be, that could be interesting, right? As you show two different variants of of how to do certain things and then showing those outputs out in benchmark.net, that could be pretty cool. Yeah, do it. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, Yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Listeners, if you're listening to this, hopefully you're you're still here. <laughs> hold me hold me to it. I make sure that I I get it and I tweet it or create a repo or something like that and share it with folks. But I definitely want to try that out. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to you talk about today? What um, else is going on? I think those are the main things, right? Like I again, I'm really excited to see where we take .NET, particularly going forward. You know, one of the things I was really interested about when whenever I decided to to join Stripe was what are what are the contributions I can continue to have to the community at different companies and doing very specific things. And I think something like payments, which is very challenging sometimes, and um, and there's a lot of compliance and things of that nature. There's a lot of stuff that we have to think about. And so what could I do to kind of help make the lives of everyone a little bit better, a little bit easier? So if for folks who are listening, I mean, if you're building applications that accept money, uh, I definitely love to hear from you. Definitely love to talk to you and see, you know, what your perspective is or, you know, what are some of the challenges that you face and see what we could do to kind of make that an easier path for you. Other than that, you know, if folks want to reach out to me, I'm always available on Twitter at Cecil Phillips. You know, I do some things on YouTube. So, you know, I have various videos and, and stuff like that that's online. And another thing, I'm really looking forward to getting back outside, man. I'm not I'm not <laughs> lying to you. I, I'm planning to go to some conferences right now and hopefully things are going to keep trending in a positive way and it'll be a little bit safer for us to just kind of be together in a socially responsible way at conferences and and events and things of that nature. So I'm ready to go, man. I'm ready to get outside. So if if people want to come see you at a conference, which ones are you going to be at? I can tell you I'm a, I'm planning to go to Code on the Beach is the next one I'm planning to go to right now. That one is going to be in Jacksonville, Florida. I believe it's in June, June, July, something like that. What other in-person conferences am I doing? I think every other ones that I've been applying to have been virtual. I'm a big fan of the Caribbean DevConf. I don't know if they're they're going to have it yet or not. It's still a lot of time. That's usually around October. But if they have it, I'm definitely going to make sure that I try to go there. And um, yeah, who knows? You might you know I might make a guest appearance at some other places too. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see what happens. All right. 
Well, for our listeners do get a chance to uh, either watch you virtually or in person. I think it's definitely worth their worth their while. For sure. Yep. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So I think I'm going to move us on to picks and finish up the show, wrap things up. I guess I'll go first. And this one, I'm I'm a little embarrassed about picking it, but I like it. Maybe somebody else will enjoy it too. It's it's an Amazon show called Upload. Are you familiar with it? I've seen season one of Upload. Yeah, they just released season two. So my my pick for this week is season two of Upload. So I've only watched the first one. So it's like, wow, awesome. So I'm yeah, picking I like season one. And it was definitely one of those, is that it? What's happening? Like, what are we doing now? Like, where's, where's the rest of it? <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. it's a little corny. It's a little funny. It, you know, it's got tech-related stuff into it. So people, you know, yeah. might get that out of it. But uh, if uh, basically just the gist of it is a guy got uh, killed, died, mm-hmm. and they decided to upload his, his basically his soul, his essence, his mind up into yeah. a virtual world. Mm-hmm. And so he's up in this virtual world with other virtual people up there. But then they also have the ability to interact with the real world and do kind of odd things. So, And there's some relationships that go back and forth. And and season two is kind of expanding on that so far. So check it out if you're interested. I was definitely a big fan of the the first one. And kind of like what you said, I think it's important for folks to know what you're getting into. Because when I watched the first episode of the first season, I didn't know what I was watching. Right. <laughs> and then I was just like, what what is happening here? Like, what is this? And like you said, it's a little quirky. It's it's, it's kind of funny. It's it's very like light watching for sure. Definitely not like a very serious tone or anything, but it's definitely yeah, very absolutely. So now yeah. that you tell me season two is on, I think I know what I'm gonna do this weekend. Okay. All right. Do you have a pick for us? I do have a pick. My old pick my pick is kind of old, I guess. It's 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 new to me, it might be old to everyone else. But recently, I picked up on the Xbox, I picked up uh, Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Now, I, I'm going to say this. I'm not a big fan of the old Assassin's Creed games. Like, I really haven't played very much of them. My son likes to play Black Flag a little bit, like Assassin's Creed Black Flag. But, you know, other than that, I don't really pay too much attention to them. But this one is really good. For me, I think it's really good. If you like like that action-adventure RPG-style, mm-hmm. open-world-style game, it's it's amazing. Like, the graphics are amazing. You know, I run it on the Xbox. It looks, it looks beautiful. And the world is just so intense. Like, there's just so much going on. Definitely not something I recommend for young kids. Um, they'll play it around your children. But uh, it's it's a great game. And I think the game is about a year old as we're talking, but you know, I just got it. And I got the pack that has like all the extensions and the DLCs and stuff. So I just I'll just get it all at once, right? And kind of get it out the way. <laughs> and yeah, I've been loving it, man. I look, you know, they have that counter on your game console that tells you how many hours you've put in. I think I've put in about 30 hours into it so far. And someone online was like, oh, this is a 120-hour game. I was like, what are you telling me right now? That's a lot. That is a lot. But I've been enjoying it, man. It's been a lot of fun. I have to tell you, I am too old. I never really learned how to use a controller. No? <laughs> I am still a PC gamer. Yeah. You know, keyboard and mouse or everything. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my son was really young and we're, we're playing, you know, some of the games there. And he says, here, try this out. And it's like, uh, I don't, there's too many... <laughs> too many fingers. I got to do this thing. And it's like, I was just clicking and pressing randomly. And somehow yeah. I, 
I did a multi-kill and he's like, good job, dad. And he's like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. But, you know, so Ubisoft does publish for PC. So you can get it on PC too if you ever yep. want to check it out. Yep. Yep. But, um, yeah, that's definitely my pick of today. All right, cool. If our listeners want to reach out and get touch with the show, we'd love to hear from you. We'd like to know, you know, you know if you have some guests that you'd like us to invite on the show or some topics or, or just uh, some feedback. You can reach me on Twitter. I am at .NET Superhero. So that's it for today. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.